Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. It's our hope that the next few moments lead you closer to Jesus, encourage you to grow, and equip you to exist for those not yet here. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that we can bring you fresh content every week as you continue in your walk with Christ. And uh, we are going to jump into this message, uh, and I want to remind you, next week, the message today on the topic of alcohol, will you will guide and direct next week's message through your questions. And so I'm going to stay pretty focused this week on what the Bible says and not give you very many of my opinions. I'm going to give you what I think Scripture teaches. And then next week we can open up different questions and uh, kind of discuss and go, o- go over stuff. And so if you have questions, if I'm talking, you're like, man, I, I, I've, I've always wondered that or I, you know, I'm going through the situation, quick jump online, open up the app and submit the question and we will go with it from there. Uh, but I think this has been a really productive series. Like I just think we should take on difficult topics. And so alcohol is, is one of those. And so I started studying the relationship of alcohol uh, with people. And so people and alcohol. And uh, outside the church, uh, on a given month, in a given month, six out of 10 people will, will drink alcohol. And so four people that are not church people, four out of 10, they abstain. They don't drink because maybe they're an alcoholic in the past, or maybe they have an alcoholic, or maybe they, they don't, they, it's too much money. Like, they don't want to waste their money. Maybe they're on a diet plan, but they don't want to waste calories. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, these are all fine reasons, but six out of ten, they, they, they drink, right, socially. Uh, of those six out of ten, the, the, that percentage that, that drinks, 60%, some were around 20%. So 20% out of 100, two out of those six people would say, if, candidly, if you ask me, I drink too much. I, I, I have more than one drink, more than I should. Uh, I get hung, you know, drunk. I'm hungover. Uh, I make, I've made bad choices. I've slept around with somebody that I don't, shouldn't have slept around with. Like, I've done some things I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, proud of. Uh, I, I have a hard time stopping. Like, uh, they would say, I used to drink this much, but no longer does that much work for me. So now I got to drink a little bit more. So about 20%. But here's the thing about these sermons, There's not, they're, not about, they're not about people outside the church, they're about the church. So I wanted to study the relationship of church people to alcohol. What are, what's our relationship? How, do, how are we working with it, right? And so uh, what was interesting is 60% of people outside the church drink. In the last month, if they, if they study church people, 50% of church people in the last month socially drank. Of the 50%, although we're not at a 20% level, Right, but let's just say uh, we're a little bit better. Of the fifty percent of people that drink, if you're going five out of ten, about thirteen to fifteen percent, so one and a half people, they 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 get drunk pretty consistently. They come to church, they know what the Bible teaches. You know, Christians get cute. They're like, man, it's not drunk. I'm buzzed. I'm taking the edge off. Right? I had a, I had a rough week sangria, right? You know how Christians do. We get all cute with stuff. We don't just, like non-Christians will be like, yeah, I was drunk, right? Like, we're, they're proud of it. A, a, a Christian person, we, we, we know we're not supposed to. Like, the Bible talks about drunkenness, compares it to all sorts of other things that non-believers do before they know Christ. It, it, it's in the same thing. Like, we talk about homosexuality. Drunkenness is in the same passages. Orgies are in the same passage. It's not, it's not like he, it's like one of the little ones we're not going to talk about because most people have done it in the past. It's, 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 it's in the Bible, and it's, it's kind of a big deal. And here's the problem with, with alcohol. When you're preaching on it, we don't realize how much of a connection it's had to church uh, since the beginning of the church of the church. Like Jesus, how many of you know Jesus' first miracle was? Anybody know what Jesus' first miracle was? Everybody tell me what it was. Water, it's, how many church people know Jesus' third miracle? He did more than that. I'm not preaching right. I don't know his third miracle. I don't remember, right? Like I should have figured it out before I came up here, right? But that's just trying to prove the point. Give me a couple minutes, I'll Google it. Like the point is, like it's, it's part of our history. I, I grew up in a church, Pentecostal church, and so we, we tried to argue this out of the Bible. It wasn't wine, it was grape juice, right? And it's not wine. It's not wine. You know, the Bible's talking about being drunk, but it's not talking about real, like, wine like we have and all these other things. Like, we try to get pretty with it, but the truth is Jesus turned water into wine. I wish he wouldn't have. I wish he would have, like, done it in the middle somewhere where everybody doesn't remember it and use it to justify what they're doing. I wish it would have been, like, Jesus' first miracle, walking on water. Do that, right? 
or healing people. He turned water into wine. Jesus used uh, uh, wine when he did his, his first, his first uh, sacrament with the, with the disciples. He did, the, he did the communion. He said this, 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 this wine, this juice is now represents my, my blood, which is the new covenant. My blood is going to be poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So do this in remembrance of me. We're not going to get cute and say Jesus used grape juice. Jesus used wine. That's what they had back then. The problem is since that time, the church has had an up and down relationship with alcohol. By the first century, a woman named St. Bridget of Ireland reportedly changed her dirty bath water, I don't understand this, but this is a true stat in history, into beer so that visiting clerics would have something to drink. Drink By the 12th century, I love this name, try to write this down if you're a kin- kindergartner, Benedictine nun Hillengard von Biggen, right? Can you imagine what's your name? Write it out, right? You can't go to recess till you know your name. Discovers hops and beers. Uh, by 1620, ships carrying uh, people to the, to, to, to the new land, to America, a ship that was led by a man named John Winthrop, uh, came to the colony and carried more than 10,000 gallons of wine and three times as much beer as, as water. In 1670, hard cider became a staple of ministerial ordinations in apple-rich New England. Those New Englanders, right? In 1759, a man named Arthur Guinness, who was from uh, Dublin, Ireland, invents his beer, and he uses the money that he makes from his beer uh, to successfully fund Christian charities, hospitals, and Sunday school programs. There's always been this, this, this tug, of war, uh, tug of war. In the 1770s, many Spanish Catholics who you kind of rooted themselves on the West Coast in California would start missions, and in every mission, they would begin a vineyard. And then something happened, like happens all the time with Christian liberty, is oftentimes we struggle with it. By the 1800s, we began to hear the first uh, sermons on the temperance of alcohol, like being careful with it, on what, 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 what could possibly happen. And they began a new movement o- 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 away from it. In 1840, the first Washingtonian movement, one of America's first anti-alcohol organizations, is formed. In 1869, uh, a Methodist pastor named Thomas Welsh, this is a really cool, this is a cool fact, uh, you can impress somebody later on, invents a method of pasteurizing grape juice so that it isn't fermented anymore. Because it's such a problem in church. It's a communion Sunday. Woo, right? He persuades as many local churches as he can to adopt this non-alcoholic wine for communion services, calling it Dr. Welch's unfermented wine, a.k.a. grape juice. Grape juice. And there's this wrestling back, back and forth. Uh, by 1920 in America, alcohol was a problem to the point where it had gone mainstream. And in the 18th Amendment, they said, we, we should probably make it Illegal. Remember this from history class? Preachers started to come on the, on the scenes along with this and preach on the dangers of alcohol. The most famous uh, preacher that preached on the dangers of alcohol was a man named Billy Sunday. If you're a preacher, that's a perfect name. Like I, I asked my wife if I could change my name to that. She said no, like Stevie Sunday. That'd be awesome, right? <laughs> Billy Sunday was a baseball player. True story. You can look him up. He was a baseball player. And uh, he was a great baseball player. Played in, played in, I don't know if it was called the major leagues at that point. But he played for Chicago. Uh, he was super fast. People would come to watch him field and run. He was just a great baseball player. One night he was out at a bar or a tavern with other players drinking. And uh, he overheard the hymnals of some Christians that were there singing. And uh, he heard it and he gave his life to the Lord that night. He walked away from, you can study this, he walked away from baseball and dedicated the rest of his life to preaching uh, to people. At the height of his fame, he went to Boston, uh, Massachusetts, and he, he built a temporary 18, I will, I, we're building right now, so I, want, I just want to see this, in 1920, a temporary 18,000 seat auditorium. Temporary, in 1920. In 10 weeks, he preached to over 1.5 million people. The acoustics in there were kind of rough. So they filled the floor with sawdust to help the acoustics in the place and for the people to be able to hear him in this, that size of an, an arena. And so in that 10 weeks, 1.5 million people came to his services and 65,000 people, they said they walked the, dust, or the sawdust trail of salvation to the front where they would receive Jesus. His main message is alcohol has a place, it's in hell. And he preached and he preached. At the, and later on in his life, sadly, uh, he couldn't reach two of his sons. They died from alcohol. There's always been this wrestling. 
19, I think it was 1922, somewhere like that, wherever it was. I'm not a history teacher, but what did they do? They said, we can't keep alcohol illegal. So they made it legal again. And people once again began to dive into this relationship with alcohol. By 1935, a Christian named Bill W. and Dr. Bob had to found an organization because so many people were riddled with, with alcoholism called Alcoholics Anonymous. And this began this wrestling back and forth. Many other things happened. I, I can tell you, I grew up in a church, Pentecostal, where we, we didn't drink. It was just, it was just not, not part of who we were. We didn't watch rated R movies, and we didn't drink, and we didn't dance, unless you did Pentecostal dancing, which is not dancing. <laughs> and that was who we are. We called it holiness. So I went my whole life knowing, man, alcohol is not for me. Like, it's not something that the Lord wants. I went to school. I came back to start, start a church uh, in the same area that I, that, I was, that I was raised. I went to my first meal with a, with a new church person, you know, trying to mingle and sell your vision. I don't know if you ever started a church, but everybody wants to know your mission statement and your vision statement. You're just trying to figure it out. But I would give them something I made up on the spot and try to do this. And I remember we were sitting down, and, it, and he, the guy was like, do you want a drink? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take Kool-Aid or water. What do you got, man? And he's like, nah, like a, like a, like a craft beer. And I remember telling Lee, I'm like, where are we? Like, what is, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Like, and it wasn't like he was trying to, you know, Christians try to be cool. You know what I'm talking about? Like, Christians always want to be edgy and cool. It wasn't like a 2005, you know, cool Christian moment. It was just like normal. Like, hey, do, do you want to drink? And then I started looking. There was churches popping up that had church in bars and were, you know, drafting beer. And they were starting to talk about C. I never even heard of C.S. Talk about C.S. Lewis. And he used to drink beers in pubs. And if he, beer was good enough for him, it was good enough for us. And colleges were changing their stance. And all these things were happening. And I wish I could give you a sermon. And the sermon was really simple. Don't do it. Don't drink. I wish I could tell you that. I wish I could build my sermons like many churches have off of, you know, what's well, not healthy for you. You ever, you ever been there? You know, drinking and smoking are not healthy for you, so you should not do it because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, the dude preaching is a mega church. Are you with me? So you're right over your head. I, I'm, I, I, I'm like, it has to be better than that. You weigh 400 pounds. <laughs> This is well, not taped. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> but don't you think you got to do better than that? Because we're going to talk about health. We're going to go back to the church potluck. And lard in Crisco is the number one ingredient on everything that we eat. Everybody's having heart attacks. And we're in a Pentecostal church. And we're praying for people. And the spirit of the living God is saying, stop eating. <laughs> I can't heal that, right? Like, I so it can't be just, I love last service. It can't be just opinion. Listen, it can't be about my experiences because I have them. I'll share with them, with, with you, like personal experience with people, heartbreak with people. It, it, it can't be just about my convictions because I also have those. Here's what it needs to be. It needs to be biblically based. It's not about a debate. It's about digging in to what the word of God says and going, okay, how are we supposed to handle the substance of alcohol? Because here's the thing about alcohol. It's neutral. It's neutral. Let me just give you some neutral things. Guns are neutral. Are you tracking with me? I'm not talking about law. I'm talking about guns as a thing. That is a neutral thing. Before guns existed, Cain and Abel killed each other with rocks. Guns are not the problem. Anger, bullying, abuse, sin, that's the problem. Let me give you another neutral thing in scripture, money. Money is not evil in itself. Money is neutral. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But here's what we do as Christians. We go, well, how much is that? What's the level where I'm rich, where, you know, it's going to make it harder for me to go through the eye of a needle, right? As the Bible says, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get to heaven. What's rich? You ask a poor college student what's rich, what would they say? If I could just make $75,000, $80,000 a year, I'll be rich. I'll talk to a young family. That makes that much money, that has a couple mouths to feed, that's paying taxes on their houses, that's paying school bills. Are you rich? How many of you have ever met an $85,000 rich person? That's the medium income in Phoenixville. So what do you say? You need to make $100,000. You need to make $200,000. You ever meet somebody that makes three, $400,000? You're like, dude, you are rich. They're like, I'm not rich. Donald Trump's rich, right? Like that's, blame him, right? He's rich. 
This person, Bill Gates, rich. I'm not rich. Rich is a moving target. Rich is not, or money's not the problem. Money's neutral. It's the love of money. I just want to start off by telling you, alcohol is not the problem. That's the substance of the root of the problem. And so what you got to do, knowing that so many people have a problem with that, you got to biblically come at it and say, okay, what, what is my relationship with alcohol supposed to be? And let me just give you what I would call three biblical commands for alcohol. Three biblical commands. I did some digging. I couldn't just tell you don't. I wanted to. I wanted to. Number one is this. First thing, and this, 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 is, this is really important, be cautious. Be cautious. Some of you pro-alcohol in here, you have an occasional drink, you're a social drinker. You're going to find verses in the Bible that are for it. Jesus turned water into wine. Paul, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy is his young protege, he's preaching, apparently has some type of health problems. Paul tells him in 1 Timothy 5, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So Paul's like the ultimate Christian. Like he, 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 the Bible says that he became all things to all people so that he might win some. I mean, he is, he is bought into the mission of Jesus Christ in a way that most of us will never comprehend. Some of you are going to go, see, he does. It, you're sick. Tr- try it out. You have a stomachache. Like, try it out, right? And so, but the Bible also speaks repeatedly about the dangers of alcohol. Watch what it says in, in Proverbs 20. It says, wine is a mocker. And beer is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. You ever been around that? Get a couple drinks in your system, all of a sudden you're way tougher with your mouth than you should be. You're writing checks with your mouth that your body cannot cash. Be around people, they get muscles all of a sudden, or maybe even we can just get good looking all of a sudden. You're like, you're not good looking, bro. You're just saying, like, we can go to the bathroom if you want. If you really need a reality check, like, we can show you the mirror. Like, this is... This is not you talking, but what does he say? It's not wise. I love this verse in Proverbs 23. And you can find, like, if you just Google uh, warnings in Scripture about alcohol, I could have just spent here just reading verses, just verse after verse after verse, right? Watch what it says in Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who, I like this one. Who has, it's so practical, who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. I love how descriptive that is. What does he say? Woe, sorrow, strife, complaints, say things you shouldn't be saying. Like just... just do things you should not be doing. And so I'm just going to encourage you, be cautious. And here's the problem with caution. Most of us have none of it. We stop at red lights. Do we stop at yellow lights? Yellow means go faster. If you're in a construction zone and somebody flips up the stop sign, most of us normal humans, we stop. We might complain. We don't know why we're stopped. We can't see around the corner. What are you doing? Do your job better. But we stop. But if we are driving through something and there's little flashing lights and they say caution, especially when it's late at night and nobody's working there anymore, does anybody slow down? I speed up, right? Like caution is not something that we're good at. And so when I say be cautious, most of us, caution is not. And, and I just, I started thinking, like, I started thinking about caution. If I could, like, speak to that and I started just going over experiences in my life with pastors that I that I highly valued over over the life of my ministry and I I quickly thought too that that literally were heroes of the faith that over the last 20 years that they started to move their uh discretion on alcohol and their relationship with alcohol and since have lost everything the one I think of the most literally is a hero of, of the faith some of my best moments in ministry some of the best moments that I had at conferences, one of the best weeks that I had at this leadership teaching was led by this guy, literally, who was changing the area that he was in and being used by God in a mighty way, and his life became stressed. When here, here, here's the caution, because oft, oftentimes we, we look at alcohol and we use it in situations that we should not be using it in, and he began to apply it, and I think as a pastor, I think sometimes to myself, if there was ever a time when, when, when I would have the excuse to go towards alcohol, it would be in the situations that I'm currently dealing with oftentimes, where I'm like, I need a drink. 
I can't deal with this. I need a drink. I can't believe you just said that. Give me a drink. I'm tired. And you see this in scripture. They just begin to have a drink. They face difficult moments. The finances are stressful. People's lives are stressful. And you watch these, this, this, this one guy specifically. He lost his marriage. He lost his church. He lost his family. He lost everything. So I'm just going to tell you, be, be, be cautious. I think that's why scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, what does it say? Don't get drunk on wine. That's the line, by the way. That's not movable. Buzzed, drunk, 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 right? Drunk, taking the edge off, trying to relax. What does the Bible say? Don't get drunk. Don't relax. Don't take the edge off on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. You see, what happens is we start because we're not cautious to lean on the substance instead of the spirit. You ever notice this? Like when you, when you drink, you do two things. You cope and you compensate. You cope. What do you do? I'm stressed. I'm worried. I'm a teacher. I got kids coming into this class, right? I'm a principal. I deal with teachers. I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. Think about your life. I'm a nurse. Like I, I started thinking about all the people that have stressful jobs. Think about the people that work in the foster care system. I have to take a kid out of their home and take them to somewhere they don't know. Like, and they have a kid with a, with a trash bag because that's, that's all they have to carry their stuff. And they drop. I mean, you think about wanting to drink? Maybe you're a psychologist. I don't know how you listen to people all day long. Or a counselor or a doctor. You deal with the loss of your best effort and then people being mad at you and having to speak. And what do we do? We cope. In, in our lives, we try to handle our, our difficult times, our stress, our hard situations. Others of us, we compensate. What do we do? We need a drink. Why? Because we're insecure, and so this is going to help us feel in, you know, more secure. And we have social anxieties, which, by the way, is why there's alcohol at every wedding you ever go to. Everybody knows they can't dance. They're going to look stupid. What do we do with our hands at weddings? You ever notice? I'm like, just put them in your pockets, bro. Like, but why is it? We have social insecurities and anxieties. And I love what he says. He says, instead of going to that substance, go to the Spirit who will give you everything that you need to accomplish and work out everything I've called you into. If you're stressed, who are you supposed to go to? The Spirit. If you're worried, go to the Spirit. If you don't have the right words to say, the Spirit will. If you're insecure, ask the Spirit of the living God to fill you up. If you have anxiety, it's the Spirit that will quiet that down in your life. Be filled with the Spirit. And so here, here's, here's the caution. There's really only two relationships you can have with alcohol. The first one is moderation. Moderation, what is it? Right time, right amount, right heart, right maturity, which a lot of Christians will say, that's me, that's me. I got moderation. Here's what I would say. Just in the most loving way I possibly can, just stop listening to me. Put your head down and look at your physical body right now. Just look down at your belt. If you're currently looking down at a body that you would say is not in optimal health, you do not have self-control. Are you, are you tracking with me? I know that's offensive. But if you say, I have self-control, I can stop whenever I want. Can you? Like it's just, it's just, rea I know me. If it's in my house, I'll eat it. You put Twinkies in front of me, yes, sir, ma'am, whatever. Like, give it to me. And so I just, some of you, it's moderation, but it's the right heart, the right attitude, the right maturity, self-control, which here's what I found. Most Christians don't have it. So the answer for most of us then is abstinence. What's abstinence? Abstinence is just staying away from it. I'm going to lead my life with caution because I don't want this to get in the way of who God has called me to be. So be, be cautious. Number, number two, be candid. And here, here's, here's this frank conversation I want to have with you. When my mom asked me two weeks ago, she said, what, what are people going to get mad about you the most when you talk about it? I said, easy, alcohol. Talk about abortion in the church. They'll fight with you. Gender and uh, sexuality. Sexuality is always a little bit, eh, right? And so I uh, think Church of Corinth. And so, uh, like, we're, we're there. But I said, alcohol. People are going to get mad about alcohol. She said, why? I said, because more people struggle with it than want to admit. We just do the math. If we're around 15 to 16%, 13, whatever it is, that means every, for every 10 people that's in this room, there's one and a half of us that right now is addicted to alcohol. Chances are, if we're the way that I know that most church people are, because we're in church, we hide it. We don't have the conversation. We don't want people to know. We, we don't want to deal with it. We make excuses. I'm fine, right? I won't ever do it again. And I just, I hate that about church. 
I hate that we can't be candid. I hate that we can't open things up. I hate that we would rather, because some of you are like, you know, last week he's preaching on gender. I can't go get somebody in here. I don't really want to hear about alcohol then. I don't really want to deal with it. That's why Jesus says, I love this verse. He says, why do you look at the speck of salt that's in your brother's eye? I love this because I think church has spent so much time talking about other people. He says this, why are you spending so much time looking at the sawdust in your brother's eye, paying no attention to the plank, and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? I love this. You hypocrite, he says. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's, from your brother's eye. So we're not going to spend time talking about all the bad people out there. We're going to look internally. And here's how you know you have a problem. I did a little research. Uh, I studied this, this alcoholic uh, disorder, they call it. The, the actual term is alcoholic use disorder. Here's how you know that you struggle with alcohol and maybe you don't admit it to yourself. And they just ask these questions. In the past year, have you had times when you ended up drinking more or longer than you intended? Is there times when more than once you wanted to cut down or stop drinking but you couldn't? You spent a lot of time drinking or being sick or getting over the after effects. Is there times in the last year when you wanted to drink so badly that you couldn't think of anything else? Did you find that drinking or being sick from drinking often interfered with taking care of your home or your family? As it continued to impact your relationship with your family and friends to the point where you're embarrassed about it. More than once have you gotten into situations while or after drinking that increased your chances of getting hurt. Have you had, too much, had to, uh, to drink much more than you once did? This is a good one. Have you had to drink much more than you once did to get the effect you once had? And have you found that when the effects of alcohol are wearing off, you have withdrawal symptoms such as trouble sleeping, shakiness, restlessness, nausea, nausea, sweating, and a racing heart. If you answer yes to those questions, we're just going to be candid. You might be struggling with alcohol. Let's just, because we're, we're not, like this is not a candid place. This is not a place where oftentimes you're allowed to be real and say, hey, I need, I need help. I, I need somebody to come in. And so here's what you do if you are struggling. If you don't want help, don't admit you have a problem. Distance yourself from church. Don't come back next week. He's talking about my problem, right? Gratify the desires of your sinful nature and continue to keep it secret or, or bring light to it. The Bible says this in James 5, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Find somebody to talk to. Stop at a desk and say, I need help in this situation. I need somebody to help me walk through this. This is controlling my life. Bring it to light. You know what happens in light? Things are healed. If it hurts right now, I'll put you on something. You go, man, this hurts. It's probably because something's wrong. I'm just going to let you. That's how the body works. I didn't tell you the, the, the story of what happened to me last week. Last week I threw my back out. And uh, I'm 42, so that's just expected to happen. But it's never happened to me before. And the way that I threw my back out is I was playing wiffle ball with my kids. And we were playing the rules. These are new school rules. If you hit it and get to first base before they pick it up, you're safe. I was killing them. <laughs> it was 8 o'clock at night, and I was literally talking trash. And I hit the ball, and I'm running with the bat in my hand, which is a no-no. And my feet, because I'm 42, slip out from under me like this, and I land with the bat up into the middle of my back. I was on the ground. It was so bad. Harrison came over. He said, you break your back, Dad. <laughs> Are you all right? And, I, and I, it was so painful. And so I got up and I, and I walked it off, rubbed some dirt on it. We're playing wiffle ball. And we kept playing and I won. It was fine. And so, and then it kind of just was hurting. But often I never had back problems. Sunday came. I was preaching. As I'm preaching and I'm yelling, my back seized up second service. It was bad. I took ibuprofen. I got through the day. I thought it was okay, right? And so I just wanted to ignore it and it get better itself, which is what we often do. And on a Monday morning, I came in at 7 o'clock in the morning. My son had soccer practice, so I came in early. And we had welcome to church that night. So I started setting up welcome to church, and I had to sneeze. I never had this problem before. I'm not, and I sneezed, and it literally threw my back out. <laughs> Taylor came walking in after, and I was just on the ground. Oh, my God. I was trying not to cry, but I was. So I called the chiropractor, and I said, hey, I said, you know, I talked to him the day before. I said, I said, can you get me in? He went in. I went in on Monday. They did something to my back. I've never been to a chiropractor. It worked their magic. And then on Tuesday, I went back in. He took this machine, and he, he put it on my back. And he said, I want you to tell me when it gets to the point where it's painful, and I want you to tell me the pain between 1 and 10. So he got to the point where it was a 41 on my back. <laughs> and you know what he did? He didn't go, oh, we'll work on that later. He stayed right there. And it was like this knocking, and it just... 
and, it, and then he turned it up louder and louder, and it was literally three minutes of hell on my back. But today, my back is doing much better than it was doing on Tuesday, but I had to sit through the pain and be real. I'm just telling you, some of you are still mad that I said you don't have self-control. Let's just move on from that. That's the truth, man, right? But some of you, in a very real way, you're struggling with alcohol right now. And the Bible says sin grows and brings death. It doesn't go away on its own. And and the way you get rid of sin is you confess and you, you get help and you ask somebody to keep you accountable. And you get connected to other people that have had the same struggle because Jesus is all about freedom and life. In a, new, in a new direction. So number, number one, uh, you're going to be cautious. Number two, you're going to be candid. And the last one, Ian, you can come play me out. This one's really important. you got to be considerate. Be, be considerate. I'm going to ask you a question. It's an important one. And I think there's going to be two different answers. Here, here's the question. Okay, you've been saved by Jesus Christ, right? You've been called by him. He's, he's forgiven you. He's given you a new life, right? You're going to follow him. We call that being on mission with Jesus. So here's the question. If you're on mission with Jesus, then are your desires and your wants and your liberties supposed to be what's most important about your life? Or or are you biblically accurate when you understand that you're signing up to serve the Lord by loving and serving this world by putting yourself last? If you answer yes, no, the first one is about me, this could be the wrong church for you. Because this isn't in the Bible. Like, it's not in the Bible. Like, you come and you get saved. It's all about you. You're the center of the story. You're the center of the church. Like, we sing Jesus be the center, but the truth is, let's just sing to you. Like, that's just not where the Bible lines up. It's just not. So the other question is, if if you're saved and Jesus has called you on mission, then admittedly, the Bible uses verses like, pick up your cross and follow me, right? You decrease, he increases, less of me, more of you, for me to live as Christ, for me to die as gain. You guys all read those verses. Then theologically accurate in your life is you going, okay, my life is not about me, and my decisions are bigger than me. In fact, that's the one command that I can, I can hold on to. What does the Bible say in John 15? My command is this. Watch what he says. Love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? Sacrificially sacrificially, right, Uh, uh, giving up eternity for us, like doing all these things, coming to us. Watch what the Bible says. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's love. And I started thinking about this logic. I'm like, how can I explain this logically? So kids are starting school in a couple weeks. And uh, my kid's favorite sandwich, my youngest kid, is peanut butter and jelly. Anybody else have a peanut butter and jelly kid? Like, he ate it every day of the year last year. I felt, about, I was like, you're, I'm embarrassed because I feel like we're not giving you good nutrition because you keep taking it. It's all I want, peanut butter and jelly, right? And so, peanut butter and jelly. And he's going to go to a class with about 21 to 27 kids uh, in his school. And then in his school, he's going to have five or six third grade classes. And so, let's just say there's 150 kids there. And uh, we're going to send him to school. And there's a chance he's going to get a note home in the mail that says, somebody in his class has a peanut allergy. So you are no longer allowed to take peanut butter and jelly to school. Here's the okay, allowable butters you're able to take. On the top of the list is sun butter. Sun butter. It's expensive, it's disgusting, and it's un-American. I hate it. And let me just be frank with you, I don't care if your kid has a peanut allergy. Of the 3.3 million people in America that currently have a peanut allergy, only 150 of them die a year. It's no big deal. So no, I'm going to stand up for my right. And I'm going to put my chunky Jif peanut butter in this bag. And we're going to eat peanut butter because that's an American right. Now, if I did any of this and I was being truthful with you, you should leave this church because I'm a jerk. (laughs) It never happens. It's not my problem that you have a peanut butter allergy. But because I love people and we want to be a blessing, not a burden, what do we do? We go to the giant, to the end of the thing, we find the peanut, the sun butter, we pick it up, make sure it's, you know, approvable, and we eat sun butter for the entire year. 
because it just makes sense because somebody's life's on the line. You know how many people die of alcohol every year? Over 3 million people. Just to put that in perspective, a lot of us have changed our entire lives up over the last three years because COVID has killed 6.4 million people in the entire world. So if you do the math, since 2020 and 3 million people die a year, somewhere between, we're six months in, somewhere between 7.8 and 8.2 million people have died of alcohol over the last few years. And some of us would argue and say, it's not my problem. You know why it's not your problem? Because they're not your people. I want you to take that in for a second. If Jesus has changed your life, and those people are his, then guess whose they are? They're yours. They're yours. The same way that I would be an insensitive jerk for saying, I don't care about your kid. It's not my kid. I have my own kids. I'm not going to spend more money. I'm going to get the, you know, that's same thing. So here's what I would say to you. Be considerate. Think about the who. Think about the situation. Get yourself out the church bubble. Some of you, the reason that alcohol is so normal in your life is because you only hang out with church people that are mature and have their act together, and you haven't spent enough time close to hell. Because if you would get yourself out of this environment and get yourself around people that were really struggling, maybe you would reconsider. and You would go, man, there's a lot more on the line than just me socially being comfortable right now. Be considerate. Somebody say, is that in the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. The New Testament church, they didn't really struggle with alcohol at that time. Uh, but like most things, stuff, stuff evolves. Their struggle with, with, was with meat sacrificed to idols. And so that was their argument. What meat are we allowed to eat? Jewish people, you know, can we eat, can we eat pig? We really want bacon, but you said we couldn't eat bacon. Jesus died on the cross. You know, is bacon cool? And to the glory of God, uh, God says, eat, right? And so we eat bacon now, right? And so like... Uh, that was the argument. There's food sacrificed to idols and what was happening is so many people were getting saved. They were getting saved out of these, these, these areas of evil in their life, just like our church. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I don't like the taste. I like money. I'm not going to spend money on that. I've never been drunk a day in my life. I don't care. I'm fine. But there's people walking in here literally off the, off, out of hell. And they've been through some stuff that has caused them to want to numb that pain. And for me, as a Christian, I have to develop outside eyes beyond myself. And so I, I see that. And here's the question. What do we do with it? Because you got this group of mature people. They're eating meat. They're celebrating. They know idols aren't real. It's not a big deal. But then you got these new people. And idol worship is still kind of new to them. And so, like, they don't really understand it well. Like, can we, can we, can we eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols? And, you know, is, does this make us right or wrong? What about Jesus? And they're struggling with it. And you can see this wrestling. And so here's what, here's, what, here's what Paul says to the mature church. This is what he says. So if you're not a mature Christian, this is going to be hard for you to understand. But to the mature church, here's what he says. Now about food sacrifice to idols. I'm going to read this lengthy piece of, of, of the Bible to you. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. That is stinking important. I know you're fine. Like you're clean. You're mature. You're knowledge. He says knowledge puffs up, but love, what does it do? It builds up. Love's worried about building up. Watch what he says. Those who think they know something do not yet know it as they ought to know. That's important. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. Here's what he says. We all know an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's, but, there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and on earth, uh, yet... For us, there is but one God, the Father, and then he says, but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come, came and through whom we live. He says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, a little God, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. He says, but food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat. And we're no better if we do. You see this wrestling back and forth. So here's where he lands. So be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to the idols? And so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ dies is destroyed by your knowledge. 
And I want you to carry this weight with you. Watch what he says. He says, some, he says this. Where, where am I at? What verse am I on? There you go. Verse 12. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience. Watch what, watch what he says. You sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat it again so that I will not cause them to fall. I'll give up so that others can get up. Like, that's the only acceptable approach for the church. I'll, I'll give up so that some, some, that just came to me, man. Like, I didn't say that any other service. We got to put that on the podcast. I'll give up. I want this to become part of who our, I just felt it in my spirit because this is, this is, we're a cool church, right? And so cool church always struggle with these issues. We're cool. We got tattoos, right? We got loud music. You know, we might smoke outside. We had ashtrays at one point outside of our church. We're a cool church. Oh, no. I'll give up so that others can get up. I'll give up. Watch what he says. He says it again in the book of Romans. Watch what he says. And here's, here's what's interesting. These churches changed the world. These churches, we're still talking about these churches thousands of years later. Watch what he says in Romans. He says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to do anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. It's not approval we're talking about. Is it approved? That's not what we're talking about. Is it making us more successful? I'm going to give up so somebody else can get up. The problem is some of you have been so far away from those that are still down for so long that you don't remember what it feels like. And here's what I would say to, to you as a Christian. Shame on you. Shame, shame on me. Shame on me when I get so comfortable in this world that I forget what hell feels like. When I become so apathetic in my decisions that I don't even think about anybody else but myself. You better put down yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. Be cautious. Be candid. Be considerate. Would you stand to your feet all over this house? And would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I, I just want to speak to those that are struggling right now. My prayer is that the Lord would do some work, some conviction, that the goal was for him to make us better and better. Period. We're going to do church. We want to be the church that God has called us to be. Period. We want to be a church that seeks and saves the lost. We want to be part of a church where there's an environment where people that feel far from God can come in and meet Jesus Christ. I just want to speak that to your spirit. We'll give up. So others can get up. We'll give up so others can get up. I want you to pray that over yourself. What, it might not just be alcohol. It might be another Christian liberty, so-called Christian liberty that we have. I can do it. It's not hurting me. I know how to handle myself. I want to know how it affects those around you. What impact you're having. But I want to talk to the, that one person. A few hundred people here, maybe, here today. Let's talk to that one of, out of every ten. That study suggests you have a problem with alcohol right now. Let's talk to those that are keeping it secret. Let's talk to those that hide it. Let's pray that the Lord would create an atmosphere of freedom in this place. The ability to repent, the ability to give up, the ability to lay down, the ability to get help, the ability to cry out to Jesus Christ, the one who sets free, the one who can break addictions, the one who can do the actual work inside your body. Some of you, you cope with alcohol, but that's not the issue. The issue is your anger. The issue is that person that spoke something over you. The issue is that person that abandoned you. You're numbing and nursing that wound, and Jesus came to heal and restore. But only he could do it. Spirit of the living God, would you move in this place? Would you create courage to be real with ourselves? 
Would you create the acceptance that we cannot do it on our own? We cannot change ourselves on our own, but we can rely and seek you. When we lean on you, the Bible says, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up. You're not that good, but he is, friend. You're not that strong, but he is. You don't got that much power. But the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit having dunamis power. That Greek word dunamis means dynamite power. He has the ability to change you in a moment. He has the ability to heal you. He has the ability to break addiction. He has the ability to put things back together that have been shattered for years. One moment with him is better than a thousand elsewhere. So he can do it. He can do it. What does it take? I'm going to be candid right now. I need help. Some of you say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does not rule and reign in my life. Shame imprisons me. Anger screams at me. Addiction is destroying my life physically, mentally, and emotionally. But I'm going to stop running, and today I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear. When he died for you, when he shed his blood for you, when he rose in power from the dead for you, that it was through him that you could become a brand new person. Sins forgiven, shame healed. He's here. He's here. He can do it. If you're in this place, you're struggling. If you're in this place and you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. If you're in this place and you've been hiding because you're afraid if somebody sees the real person that you are, that they're not going to like you anymore. If you're in this place and you've been coming to church for years and playing the game and putting on the church smile, but you're tired of it. And a spirit of humility is wrapping and moving through this place. And right now you can feel Jesus Christ knocking at the door of your heart to the point where you say, I can't do it anymore. I need Jesus Christ. It's there he can do a work. It's there he can change. It's there he can heal. It's there he can make whole. It's there he can set free. But like any gift, he reaches his hands out. You have to receive it by faith. So I'm going to ask you, if I'm speaking to you right now, you don't know Christ, you need to. You're strapped with addiction. Maybe it's not just alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's the, you're addicted to relationships or pornography or anger or gossip or any other addiction uh, that is just a result of the sin that you've done and that's been done to you. And right now, you know the spirit of the living God is knocking at the door of your heart and you're ready to say, I want him to come. And the Bible says if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he would come in. That he would come into your life right now. He's here. Make no mistake. He's knocking at the door of your heart. He wants to come into your life. He wants to heal you and make you whole. If that's you all over this place and you say, hey, pastor, that's me. Not worried about the person to your right or left, but you would say, you're speaking to me in Montgomeryville. You're speaking to me right now. Would you just, in faith and a whole lot of courage, would you just shoot your hand towards heaven and say, hey, you're speaking to me right now. There's a hand, there's a hand, there's a hand. Is there anybody else who would say, hey, pastor, that's me. That's me. I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I love when the Spirit of God moves in an aggressive manner. He's here right now. Is there anybody else who said, hey, that's me. I need freedom right now. I need hope. I need healing. I, I, I need Jesus to do what only he could do. If you're in Montgomeryville, just keep your hand held high. Let's just begin to pray. Church all over this place. Don't check out. I've been on the other side. I know what happens when the pastor says, let's bow our heads or close our eyes. That means you know it's almost over. But why don't we just unite our voices right now? The Bible says that the Spirit of God is drawn to unity. And when the, unity of, when the power of God shows up because of the people that have unity, man, powerful, profound things happen. He's going to break somebody's addiction right now, forever, right now. When we begin to pray together, he's going to shift somebody's addiction right now in the name of Jesus Christ. You believe that? The Bible says you have faith the side of a mustard seed. He can move a mountain. We don't have it because we don't ask. That's what the Bible says. And so we're just going to ask him to do what only he could do. All the, the moments you've had, all the experiences, all the effort you've ever made where the presence, uh, 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 you know, somebody's telling you right now it's not going to happen. You can't do it. It's not going to be that easy. It's not going to be that good. We're going to quiet that voice and we're going to lean into the powerful voice of the Holy Spirit right now. 
He's God that's able to do immeasurably more you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. Right now, let's begin to pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for what you're doing right here in this moment. We thank you for your word, that it never returns void. But most importantly, we thank you for your presence. Because when your presence shows up, life change happens. And we believe you can heal somebody, you can break an addiction, uh, you can set somebody free. Uh, you, 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 can, you can do in a moment what we could not accomplish on our own in a thousand moments elsewhere. And you're here. So Spirit of living, I'm just going to give you a moment to move, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you just move in this place? I'm just going to sit in your presence right now. Would you just move? You're here in Montgomeryville. You're, you're there. You, you're doing the work right now. Thank you, Father, that we can feel it. We can feel you healing us from the inside out. You're renewing our mind. You're healing our soul. Lord, you're giving us new eyes. We're going to see life differently, a new perspective. We're leaving this place and we're filled with joy, unspeakable joy, the peace that surpasses all understanding, a hope. And a love, that never ending, never giving up on, always pursuing love of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you, Father, for what you're doing. You're healing, you're making whole, you're forgiven, you're restoring because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death and hell, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For anyone who calls on him shall be saved. Thank you for the work you continue to do in and through this church. We love you, Jesus. We're honored to be in your presence. It never gets old. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to our podcast. If you decided to give your life to Jesus after hearing this message, or want to learn more about how you can join us in person, visit jrny.church for more resources or to find a location near you. Have a great rest of your day.